Hello and welcome to Mending the Gap, your guide to women's mental health research. My name is Catherine Saunders, and for this episode, I will not be your host. This is a very special episode produced and hosted by the winner of the IOPPN Youth Awards for Mental Health Research and Policy. In this episode, our winner, A Fury Toy, poses challenging and thought-provoking questions to Dr. Sean Oram, who is both the head of the section of women's mental health at King's College London and the King's College London Deputy Director of the NIHR Mental Health Policy Research Unit. Please be aware that sensitive topics, such as human trafficking and domestic violence, are mentioned in this episode. My name is Afire Toe, and I won the IOPPN Youth Award for Mental Health Research and Policy. This morning, I'll be interviewing Dr. Sean Oram, who works to reduce the risk and impact of violence through different types of research, with a particular focus on human trafficking and domestic violence. Good morning, Sean. How are you? I'm great. Thank you very much. Um, so, Sean, where did your interest in mental health and gendered violence stem from? Did you always know you wanted to get into research around those topics? So mental health, not so much initially. Um, So my interest began with gendered violence. And I think looking back now, it's something I was interested in from a really early age. So when, you know, the, the very kind of earliest days of the internet, I would spend a lot of my time looking at the websites of, of feminist organisations, reading about issues of violence. I was a very strange teenager. Um, but I, it, it was something that really intrinsically interested me. I was really interested in um, women's reproductive rights, about the threats that they face in society and then it was something that I didn't get a chance to explore for a number of years. I did um, a biological sciences degree, we didn't do anything about women's health or women's mental health or women's experiences of violence during that time but I was women's officer um, for my college and was again involved in campaigns to try and raise awareness of women's experiences of gendered violence um, and of discrimination around the world and then after that I decided to do a master's in reproductive and sexual health research um, through which I was able finally to uh, learn in more detail about gendered violence um, as something that was very tied up with reproductive and sexual health. And then I did my PhD on human trafficking, which really came about by accident, um, but was inspired by um, an amazing lecture that I received during my master's by Professor Cathy Zimmerman at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. And I just thought it was the most amazingly... um, awful and unfair um, thing I'd ever heard about and I really wanted to, to, to know more about it. So your interest in gendered violence has always been something that you've kind of taken an interest in as I'm a young person? I think so I, and I don't really understand why that is. I think it, for me it's always come down to the, the fundamental unfairness of it that your experiences of life, of the world, of relationships can differ just because you're a woman. Now I'm going to ask you some questions around research. Do you think that there is a link between human trafficking and the development of mental illness? If so, what is the link? It's quite interesting you said, is is there a link? What do you mean by... um, 
I suppose I would ask you, what do you what do you mean by a link? But I, a lot of the time when people are talking about that, they're talking about an association, actually. And definitely we see a really high level of mental health problems among people who've experienced trafficking. And for sure, a number of, of those people will have had mental health problems before they've been trafficked. For some people, having had a mental health problem will have played a role in their vulnerability to having been trafficked. It may have been a reason why a trafficker chose to groom them or recruit them um, into exploitation. But I think for a lot more people, it's really their experiences while they've been trafficked, sometimes compounding experiences of abuse prior to trafficking, and sometimes being, well, very often being exacerbated by experiences after exploitation. Um, so the whole trafficking process um, is one in which there are a lot of psychological risks, whether that is experiences of physical and sexual violence, use of threats, um, blackmail, the coerced use of alcohol and drugs, very poor living and working conditions, restrictions on freedom of movement, the use of um, extortionate and falsified debts. All of these things create a real environment of psychological risk for traffic people. And I think in that context, it's not surprising that when we interview people who've escaped or been rescued from trafficking, we see a very high prevalence of mental disorder. So research that I've done with um, people in contact with refuge services after escaping found that nearly four-fifths of women um, were screening positive for one or more of depression, anxiety and PTSD. And these are women who are ostensibly safe and who have been out of the trafficking situation for several months. So would you say that the effects, the psychological effects, are quite um, permanent and the damage is almost irreversible? I wouldn't want to say that it was irreversible. I would say it's long-lasting. And I think a great many people um, will benefit from having some form of psychological um, support or therapy um, in the aftermath of exploitation. I think it's very difficult to engage safely with therapy if you are not in a situation of stability and safety. And so it's really crucial that when traffic people are being supported, they have the, the peace of mind that they have somewhere safe to recover um, and they're not going to be subject to relocation or deportation. And that's unfortunately um, not something um, that people always have at the moment. I think when we when we talk to traffic women about I'm I'm currently doing a piece of work around recovery and what helps recovery and what recovery means and the types of things women say is that they they'll never be able to forget what's happened to them it's always going to be a part of them like a scar is always going to be um you know on your body after you've had um, had a really severe injury but over time they hope that the pain lessens that they're able to that symptoms reduce or become mm. more manageable those memories become less intense and less painful and I think that's a really sensible way of looking at it. So how do you think your qualitative epidemiological and intervention research has affected women's mental health policy? 
Uh, so that is the the question that all of the research funders and senior management of uh, <laughs> of the institution will be wanting to know the answer to as well. As researchers, obviously, you're, what you're hoping to do is to make a difference. I think making a difference takes time. Mm-hmm. But we have seen, um, for example, that work we have done really documenting the scale of problems and documenting the association of violence and abuse with mental health problems has been cited in um, major guidelines um, such as the um, National Institute uh, for Clinical Excellence and the World Health Organization, the Chief Medical Officer. So our research is helping to evidence that there is an association between violence, abuse and mental health problems and really make the case for mental health services being aware and ready to identify and respond to violence and abuse. You also have kind of more... um, you have examples where, where things have directly affected policy. Um, so one thing that I'm, I'm really pleased about, and it, it sounds like quite a small thing, but I think it's really important, is that we've been able to support changes to the charging regulations for trafficked people for healthcare in the UK. So currently, if you're an identified victim of trafficking in the UK, you are entitled to receive healthcare services for free, whereas other... Um, non-EU nationals would be charged for several different types of health care. So accident and emergency care mm. is always free, GP care is free, but sexual health care is free, but, but certain types are not. And what we've managed to um, make the case for is if a person has been charged for care prior to being identified as trafficked, those charges should be refunded, they should be reimbursed. Um, and, I, and I think that's... That, to me, that's something that's really important. So would you say that you expect um, more changes in the future to occur um, that your research has aided? I hope so. And I think this is a great time to be working in violence, abuse and mental health. I think it's something that is really increasingly being recognised as an issue. Um, We were recently awarded by UK Research and Innovation a major grant to establish a new network on violence, abuse and mental health, which is bringing people together across a range of sectors and disciplines to try and build shared understanding and generate new research in this area. I, I think it's very encouraging that despite a, a relative paralysis in kind of new legislation coming through government, two, you know, two or three things that have been coming through relate to violence, abuse and mental health. So you have the domestic abuse bill, which is um, currently very prominent in Parliament and there's consultations going on around that at the moment. There is a a victim support bill going through the House of Lords on um, trafficking and um, there's been the Independent Review of the Mental Health Act, which has had some really important recommendations and has really highlighted the gendered experience of um, involuntary detention under the Mental Health Act and women's experiences of, of practices like co- uh, coerced medication and seclusion and restraint and has drawn attention to how that can be re-traumatising for somebody who has experienced domestic or sexual violence to be restrained 
um, by by a member of staff. So I think um, it's something that is increasingly being talked about, and I think that gives great opportunities to feed research into policy. If you got the opportunity to replace Boris Johnson for 24 hours, what policy would you be eager to set in motion and implement before you lost your strong political influence? If I had the opportunity to replace Boris Johnson for 24 hours, what I would be... Could I achieve it all in 24 hours? Um, I would be wanting to set in motion, I suppose, a a number of things that address the the realities of, of women's lives that would be thinking about how women are um, able to be questioned in, in family courts, that would be how women are treated in the benefit system and how that leaves women vulnerable to um, economic abuse. That would be thinking about what support is in place for women who are experiencing violence I would be wanting to see much more in the way of secure funding for uh, for refuges and for the recognition um, that women need spaces where they are just around other women, that black and ethnic minority women um, and women from other minoritised communities should have specialised services that are expert in meeting their needs. There's been a number of these services have closed down recently and I, and I think that's absolutely the wrong thing. I would be wanting to see much stronger penalties uh, for people who perpetrate domestic violence. I don't think it, it's at all appropriate that people are given very short sentences for really heinous crimes that women aren't aren't told um, necessarily that somebody who has abused them is going to be released from prison, that they aren't told whether somebody who is on probation has satisfactorily completed a domestic violence perpetrator course. Um, I don't understand how women can be expected to make decisions about their safety and that of their children in that context. I would want to be seeing much stronger um, support, much stronger implementation of um, equal pay legislation, about maternity protections. There are I could I could talk for um, <laughs> for all of the all of the episodes that you have to come. Um, Twenty four hours wouldn't possibly be enough. I think there are a lot of structural problems for women in Britain Um, Mm. (laughs) and I would like to see um, a much greater commitment to um, to addressing them. Those are definitely um, great policies to start with. So you mentioned economic abuse, do you mind elaborating a little more on that? Yeah absolutely it's something that has recently been recognised in in the UK actually and I think everybody owes a, a real debt, mind the pun, um, to, to Nicola Sharps Jeffs, who has set up an amazing charity called Surviving Economic Abuse and has lobbied really hard and really effectively for the greater recognition of economic um, abuse as a form of domestic violence. And the sorts of things we see are um, 
not only depriving women of a fair share of, of, of household income and preventing women um, from being able to work and, and generate their own their own income, but also things like taking out um, credit cards, debts in women's name. So making it really very difficult for women to leave a relationship and having left, making it very difficult to to rebuild their life. Now I'm going to ask you one more question regarding policy. The legal definition of domestic violence changed in 2015 to include coercive and controlling behaviour. What are your thoughts on that change? Are you pleased with it? Do you think it is more en- encompassing? Yeah, I, th- I think it's like it was an absolutely crucial change and it and it it means that the the definition of domestic violence now speaks much more to women's experiences of domestic violence which is often accompanied by coercive and controlling behavior so these behaviors that are designed to intimidate and isolate and humiliate um a person and to make them dependent on the perpetrator um and this is something that you you often women often talk about um, when when they're describing their experiences of domestic violence and although of course men can be victims of domestic violence and of coercive and controlling behaviour it's it's these behaviours in particular that we we tend to see as being hallmarks of of women's experiences. So would you say that the coercive and controlling behaviour can be um, even more damaging than potentially physical violence? I, th- I think it can be. Um, there's the, you know, there's there's good evidence that psychological abuse can be as damaging as as physical abuse. You obviously you have the kind of the, the physical injury and fatalities associated um, with physical violence, but I think this this constant feeling of um, surveillance, of threat, of control is is incredibly psychologically damaging. Um, and and can feel very difficult to escape from. So leading on from that, do you think enough is being done about domestic violence? Is there anything that me or any others listening can do to make the difference to the cause? Um, Is enough being done about domestic violence? No, domestic violence is still happening. It's still happening at unbelievable levels. I was reading a Facebook post just last week from um, a pub from um, an area of the country that um, I'm originally from, which said, would you punch your ex in the face for a free steak? And I think that is the level of that, that trivialising, that normalising is outrageous to me that somebody can can make that sort of a joke I think when you work in domestic violence you you work with people who get it you talk to your family and friends about it and they get it but you you can't let yourself forget that there's still a large part Mm. of, of the population who who don't get it who think it's acceptable to make jokes about who make um, who, who differentiate between the severity of experiences um, and what's important and what isn't. So I think there's a lot of work to do around public um, 
understanding and awareness and I would encourage people to call things out like that when they hear them. I think there is a lot that needs to be done around the services and support that are available to women. The specialist women's sector has been decimated under austerity. I think people need to, yes, raise money for those services if you are engaged in charitable activities, but also to um, petition and lobby on behalf of the continuation of those services there are a great many other things that people mm. can get involved in um, advocating about um, signing petitions about writing to their MPs about taking a political interest in this topic I think is crucial whether that is about how women are treated in the courts how women are treated by the police how women are treated in services how women are affected by the benefit system all of these things affect women's experiences of domestic violence and I think there's so many opportunities to be political about this issue and and I think people really do need to be. Would you go as far as to say that educating children at school would be a good way to um, raise awareness, especially from a young age? I think children need to be supported to learn what a healthy relationship looks like Mm. uh, and what it doesn't. And I think that's important both for children as they grow up and form their own relationships and for children who may be experiencing domestic violence in the home. We know that tens and tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of children are exposed to domestic violence in their homes every year. Um, And we need to provide children with a a way of understanding what what their... um, being able to talk about what they're experiencing. So thank you, Sean, um, for coming here today and talking with me. It's lovely to meet you. Thank you very much. It's been great. So there we have it, a wonderful exploration of mental health research and policy. Thank you so much to Afuri for hosting this episode and also to Sean for sharing her views and experiences in research and policy. Thank you also to Emma Yap for helping to produce this episode. Please do rate and review and be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at MendTheGapPod. And join the conversation using hashtag MendingTheGap. We'll be back with a brand new episode very soon. Thank you for listening.